Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 21st of January, 2019, and this is episode 97. On today's programme, Professor Tammy Proctor from Utah State University gives a talk about the end of the German occupation of Brussels during the months of October to December 1918. This paper was given as part of the End of the War and Reshaping the Century Conference held at the University of Wolverhampton in September last year. Thanks, Mark. Um, thank you all for coming out this morning. And um, so I'm sort of taking on the same question that John Horn took on yesterday, but um, in a much smaller way, uh, <laughs> uh, which is when did the war actually end in an occupied city? Um, what does that look like? Um, and uh, in particular, I guess I got to this question because when I was doing the diary with Sophie on um, Mary Thorpe, it kind of, uh, starting in about early October, you start to see these trickles of anxiety running through the diary about what the end of the war will look like, when will it come, there's this great anticipation. Um, and I wondered if that was true also in a lot of the other first-hand accounts of the period. So I went looking at other diaries, and this conference paper is kind of a, a response to that question I had about what does the end of occupation look like? Okay, um, days before war ended on the Western Front, Mary Thorpe, English governess, noted in her war diary that the population of Brussels, Brussels was unsettled. We are all living on our nerves at high pressure, expecting every moment to hear the armistice is signed and on what conditions. After four long years, civilians living in Brussels longed for an end to German occupation. Uh, the requisition of goods, the lack of contact with the outside world, and the sound of cannons, which is in virtually every uh, entry in the diary from the last year of the war. All of this um, made them just anticipate an end. The question, though, was, um, did an end to fighting mean an end to the war for people in Brussels? Did it mean an end to occupation? Um, and what were the, op the implications, not just for the Belgian civilians, but also for the German occupiers, who are also kind of watching an anxiously to see what's happening? So this paper investigates the First World War's impact by focusing on the mechanisms of demilitarizing an occupation zone in the weeks just before and after the armistice. Um, I use uh, several first-hand accounts. These are just a few of the ones that I looked at. Uh, Mary Thorpe, uh, Marguerite Giron, who's a middle-class woman. Uh, her diary was published uh, just a couple of years ago. Some diplomatic diaries. Um, uh, this one up on the top right is a journalist. And then uh, the well-known middle um, kind of chronicle <coughs> of the war. Um, so these are just a few that I looked at. Um, so what I'd like to argue is that de demilitarization in an occupation zone takes on a fundamentally different character from frontline or home fronts. While these areas all share a kind of emotional shock to the end of the war, um, occupied zones face particular traumas regarding patriotism, collaboration, and normalcy. What does normal look like? 
To demilitarize implies a disappearance of soldiers, I think. I was trying to think, you know, how do I define demilitarization? Uh, from the streets and an end to the trappings of military authority. Yet liberation of an occupied zone is usually accompanied by other uniformed soldiers, by uh, the return of the national army or by an, another occupying army in some cases. Um, so the militarization of daily life had become the new normal, especially given the complicated nature of authority under occupation, where many Belgian elites um, cooperated with the occupiers. So it's, it's very thorny to figure out what a demilitarization might look like. Uh, so in my short time here, I'll discuss the specific problems of Brussels, which was the largest occupied city during the First World War, in order to argue that the unstable political situation, the unfolding revolution in Germany, and the fear of disorder shaped the ways in which ordinary people understood what a post-war Brussels could look like. Demilitarization, to the extent it could be identified, meant a disappearance of German authority over the course of a few weeks. Um, and it does kind of play out over almost a month and a half. Um, oddly, however, at least for me it was odd, demilitarization also required the appearance of the Belgian army in Brussels. That was sort of the moment when people knew oh, something has really changed. Um, and of course, led by the uh, so-called soldier king, Albert I. That event marked the end of the war most strongly in the popular imagination and in the diary accounts that I read. Um, yet, I wonder if Brussels ever really reached a full demilitarization of the mind and of course of the landscape. Even today, the experience of occupation marks Belgian history deeply. Um, from the munitions still being unearthed in the farmer's fields around Brussels um, to the narrative of poor little Belgium that endures in popular understandings of the war. Um, so I guess that's my big question is, is, is there a demilitarization and what does it look like? And of course there is at some level. In October of 1918, all of Brussels was awaiting news of the war's end. Um, rumors were flying about town and Rumor is one of the big threads that runs through occupation. Uh, for those of you who've worked on that, you know. Um, Diarist Marguerite Giron captured this feeling very well in an entry from early October, the first week. Brussels is boiling and, and peddling at the same time real news and fanciful gossip. Two days later, uh, she says the city had gone crazy, writing that all of Brussels was persuaded that the war was finished and their troubles were over. This is on October 11th. So just to give you an idea of the timeline here. Rumor had spread throughout the town that all the German troops would evacuate before the end of October. Um, and so there's this delight, and, uh, and Mary Thorpe also writes about this and says uh, the town's crazy with delight. Now this delight was mixed with a certain measure of caution for many, especially those who were responsible for order in the town. Um, it's unclear what a German withdrawal would look like and what might still happen in the weeks prior to the war's end. And yet a full month before what would become the official armistice, Brussels inhabitants had begun to hope and to plan. Even the city's notables who met that same day um, for their, they had a regular gathering to organize the food um, distribution. So at their meeting, they could hardly ex uh, contain their excitement. Journalist uh, Charles Tietke, this uh, author here, recorded in his diary that 150 or so people had come to the meeting to observe, um, and everybody had different political leanings and personalities, 
But on that day, there was just joy across the political spectrum, anticipation. So despite the realization that war might really be coming to a close, Brussels remained uneasy. Um, there was a big concern about a reestablishment of order uh, and control over social, economic, and political life. And um, people didn't really have a lot of patience. Uh, they wanted you know, to know what was going to happen. Many worried about the question of law and order, widespread destruction of infrastructure such as rail lines, and a large influx of retreating soldiers and refugees added to this fear. While Belgian civil inhabitants coped with the possibility of freedom, German occupying forces, forces reckoned with a different set of problems. For them, war's end came as both surprise and relief. Um, ordinary soldiers processed both their own weariness at the length of the war and the shock of defeat, um, all the while beginning to hear stories of what was happening at home, the sort of revolutionary activity that's starting to, to percolate. Um, at the end of October 1918, Germans did still control the streets, and soldiers remained billeted in Belgian homes. So they're, they're still in place at the end of October. Uh, the cannons still sound in the city, and all the diaries talk about this. Um, <clears throat> manufacturers and landowners began to worry about what a German retreat might mean. Would there be um, destruction of property, burning, uh, destruction of infrastructure? Also, I think many Belgian um, elites, especially manufacturers, worried about their ability to compete after four years of war production and, and also the loss of some of their equipment and, um, and workers. Um, in terms of government, the Germans had interned during the war a large number of local leaders, a lot of mayors. And so people also questioned if these returnees would or could resume their roles. So once they come back, what, what's their state going to be? Um, this was particularly true in Brussels, where uh, the mayor was kind of a celebrity, Adolf Max, um, and his arrest and imprisonment had made him a hero to many people. Uh, finally, it was an open question how quickly German occupation policies and institutions could be replaced, and whether an allied occupation, like a full occupation, might follow the war. What would, what would happen? Um, I would say that the concerns of Brussels are somewhat unique in Belgium because they lived under um, a civilian authority, mostly. Um, and so it's different than, say, cities in the Etat, like Ghent. Um, also, Brussels didn't have the level of destruction that some of the other cities had faced. So they don't have some of the same problems that other cities in Belgium had to face uh, with the end of occupation. The other thing that makes Brussels kind of unique is that a lot of the financial elites are still in the city, and they're involved in the occupation and um, in food distribution and relief. And so they're kind of in place, just waiting you know, for their time to move forward. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So while a lot of people longed for an end to German occupation, they also feared disorder or possibly revolution if a power vacuum em emerged. Revolutionary fever was in the air. Um, the city looked warily at communists, um, especially given the news they were getting from other parts of Europe. There was also an internal challenge from Flemish um, activists who had gained traction during the war. And in the last few weeks of the war, um, hundreds of thousands of refugees had been flooding into primarily Brussels. Some of them um, 
looking to an end to the war and looking to reestablish their lives. Others really literally being driven there by the German army. And so you've got lots of people coming into the city. And that's creating housing, anxiety, sanitation issues, concerns about the post-war food supply. And so that's percolating as well. Um, by late October, a lot of the, the refugees um, had temporary shelters and canteens. But again, it's still a, a point of concern. And a lot of locals can't really plan to give um, supplies to help the refugees because they've been requ requisitioned. You know, all the mattress wool, for instance, has been requisitioned during the war. So it's not like they have a lot of extra supplies that they can give out. And they talk about that in the diaries. Um, so I think October, especially the end of October, marks the height of anxiety and uncertainty. Uh, back and forth diplomatic salvos became the topic of every conversation and the populace eagerly sought news um, from any source possible. Particularly gripping, and this is mentioned in all of the diaries, um, is the correspondence between Woodrow Wilson and uh, Max von Baden, the, the Germany's new chancellor, this, you know, this question of what's going to happen. Um, and uh, many of the Belgian citizens are also trying to question the soldiers who are billeted in their houses, and this is a kind of an interesting piece to the diaries that they're trying to get intelligence from these German soldiers about what they know about the end of the war. And Mary Thorpe says that she talked to the coachman, um, and the coachman said that the soldiers said that um, they were en route for Germany, that they and their officers are tired to death of war and they're, they're getting ready to move. So these incidents kind of heighten the sense of anticipation. This period of watchful waiting ended with the early days of November when news of the mutiny at Kiel and the disorder in German cities began filtering into Brussels. Uh, Giron described the grave things disrupting life in German communities. Um, I have to say taking a certain pleasure in Germany's misfortunes. <laughs> she's, uh, she's quite happy that things are falling apart. And uh, her real joy erupts when news of um, Wilhelm's abdication reaches her, which is on November 9th. Thorpe, for her part, recounted the words of one of the local diplomats, um, the Spanish ambassador, that same day. He said of the Kaiser, quote, he's dead and buried and has started to smell bad already. She writes this in her diary with much glee. Yeah. Um, so it's fair to say the abdication created a lot of joy in Brussels. But the fear of chaos um, hadn't disappeared. And this is particularly true because German troops in Brussels began to exhibit revolutionary activity. And um, this starts in little ways in October. Um, some of the soldiers sent to requisition mention uh, to Thorpe, for instance, that um, they're tired of war and they don't really want to be doing this. And they kind of do a, kind of a halfway <coughs> job. Um, but the, the street disorder starts in November. Uh, one of the chronicles says, uh, quote, I have seen today the collapse of the imperial regime and the end of Prussian militarism. And this is a comment on what's happening in the streets. Um, while the month-long retreat um, that started in October of the German army was um, orderly and seemed kind of subdued to a lot of the Brussels observers, the events of early November had a different flavor as officers lost control of their subordinates. Um, this is a process documented in all the diaries I read. 
um, it seemed as if the German military was dissolving before their eyes, or at least that's how they recount it. Um, and Jerome said the revolutionary movement spread to the whole German army, which is an overstatement, but... Uh, Thorpe also observed, all the big military men have vanished and the soldiers are doing as they like. They hoisted the red flag on the minister, uh, plucked off their German imperial insignia from caps and uniforms and threw them on the ground. Uh, other groups of German soldiers carrying red flags and white chrysanthemums chanted and marched toward the prison at Saint-Gilles where political prisoners had been detained during the war. Uh, later that evening, soldiers' random firing of weapons broke the silence. News reports of soldiers looting and disobeying officers also surfaced, and small groups of German soldiers marched through the main streets of the city. So on the one hand, I think the observers are seeing this as a sign that the war is about to end and they're excited. On the other hand, they're really concerned, especially um, many of these middle-class observers are thinking, well, what happens if Belgian leftists join this, if it becomes a, a big revolution. Um, now I should say that in this kind of early part of November when things are falling apart a little bit, um, many Brussels citizens are also taking the opportunity to take revenge on those that they saw as German collaborators. So there's also burning of German newspapers and looting of uh, shops that were considered to be uh, German collaborative shops. Um, and so I, I kind of came to the conclusion that in some ways demilitarization at first in Brussels means disorder. The, the fact that the, the military authority is dissolving seems like a demilitarization process, or at least the beginning of one. Um, of course, that raises the question of what comes next. And um, Thorpe notes her unease. We're anxious about what may ensue. There's not sufficient police, no established authority just now capable of controlling the masses. Now, I think she's exaggerating the situation, and um, historian Benoit Majeru, his book on police, shows that they are monitoring the disturbances and they are responding. But part of the problem they faced was knowing whose authority to maintain, Germans or Belgians, right? What, who are they looking to for orders? So with the armistice of the 11th of November came an end to the waiting uh, for the war to end, but it also brought um, another set of issues. Um, there were concerns about Flemish activists seeking recognition of their grievances, um, leftists, uh, possibility of a real revolution as a European-wide phenomenon, and Brussels was the epicenter for a lot of this political maneuvering in Belgium because it's filled with um, neutral diplomats as well. And so there's a lot of conversation going on in Brussels. Uh, Thorpe, who is tied in with many of these diplomatic um, circles, warned, says that they warned her that the situation was very precarious, that Belgian socialists might manifest against the king. Um, and the the results of militarization have not yet disappeared. So for instance, um, many of you probably know Belgium. It's about 50 kilometers from Brussels to Ghent. Um, it took about 24 hours on, on the train in 1918 in November to go because of disruptions and problems with the trail, uh, their train lines. Prices of goods are fluctuating. There's a black market. Um, there are prisoners of war in the city. There are refugees. Um, there's vestiges of munitions in the area outside of town. 
And so all of this is um, percolating, as I said, in this period in the middle of November. Um, there's also a lot of uncertainty about questions of reparations, retrieval of property, and um, of course, collaboration. So um, to conclude, locating a demilitarized Brussels is, is hard for me. Um, the obvious demilitarization was marked by the German evacuation of the city. So first there's the disorder, then there's the, the full evacuation of the city, which takes place on the 18th of November, um, 1918. Um, <clears throat> the process of memorialization, which I think is interesting, starts immediately. They set up 10 temporary memorials and they go up by November 22nd. So think about that. And these are not small memorials. These are big ones. Um, Lane Anglin has just done a really interesting article on these, um, these 10 temporary memorials. Um, and so they're immediately kind of celebrating the end of the war while it's happening. Um, the Belgian flags, of course, come out. The city looked to enshrine a sense of Belgian civ civilian sacrifice and to project a newly restored order that included the return of the king and of deportees and refugees. Um, and there's several moments where they continue to celebrate the end of the war. So they celebrate at the abdication, they celebrate with the disorder, they celebrate on the 17th, as you can see here, when uh, the mayor of Brussels returns from his, um, his time in the German camp. Um, they celebrate on the 18th when all the Germans leave, and then they celebrate again on the 22nd, which is when the king, King Albert I, and the Belgian army return triumphantly to the city. Um, picture of that. So demilitarization, in a sense, was marked by the appearance of the Belgian military and its leader, one military authority usurping another or superseding another. Um, one could argue that demilitarization of Brussels launched a new Belgium, where order was not so much restored as reformed. And what's happening behind the scenes, and I, d I can talk about this more in the Q&A if you're interested, is that because of the disorder at the end of the war and the uncertainty, the king um, and many of the political leaders of Belgium have been meeting secretly uh, outside of um, Bruges to sort of figure out what to do when they go back. What are we going to announce? What's our government going to look like? And they try to forestall problems that I don't know they would have, have tried to deal with immediately if it hadn't been for this period of disorder in the city. Uh, but they announced universal male suffrage, uh, a unity cabinet, and they at least promise to Flemish activists some movement on the language issue. So they come into the city and kind of try to forestall any problems by announcing change. Um, I also think that in some ways um, the war's legacy really uh, transformed Belgian politics. And one way that I think it did so was through um, its real focus during the war on local authorities, um, cooperation between occupying officials and local authorities that kind of showed a possibility of what a dispersed politics might look like. And that continues into the interwar period. And again, if you look at Belgian politics today, I think it, it has some <laughs> echoes in how that plays out. But it's, you know, it's possible to run a country for four years really depending on local officials. Um, and so that, I think, is important. And then I just end with the, t these are the permanent memorials that go up. 
And um, to me, they emphasize the legacy of militarization and the enduring presence of uniformed soldiers in the city. So, thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.